It's starting to smell like a yoga studio in here. (laughs) As I walked in, I got this waft of bodies and yoga mats and (laughs) it's kind of a new smell in the in the zendo here. So uh, this evening, um, as you may know, um, we're going to be uh, talking about the teaching of the Four Noble Truths in this retreat. This is the, sort of the, the basis for this retreat, and it's uh, one of the central teachings of the Buddha. And so over a series of evenings, we'll be going into, into some depth, those teachings. And I'll be starting that this evening. But I first just wanted to speak a little to um, your experience where you are. You've been sitting now for two days. Um, We've all remarked a lot how incredibly still and settled the retreat feels compared to last year. And there's a last year, there was, you know, there was the last retreat, there was a lot of newness and uh, it took a lot longer for people just to settle in and get into the groove and, and just hearing, listening to people in interviews today, it's really clear that for many of you are feeling the fruits of your practice, the fruits of the last retreat, the, the fruits of having practiced and integrated uh, over these last uh, six months or so when we last were together. And so it's really delightful for us to see uh, the, 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 the maturity and the just how quickly people have dropped into um, the quietude and stillness. And so um, that's not to say that um, well, that's how it looks on the outside. <laughs> I know for each of you, you know, just as, you know, for all of us when we practice, when we go on retreat, there's, there's the inevitable ups and downs, the inevitable struggle with the hindrances, with tiredness, with crazy mind, puppy mind, with doubt, with, with, with fears, and uh, all the baggage that we brought from our lives, and going over all of that. So I'm not saying that, that's, that you're all sitting like the two Buddhas behind me, um, even though you look like that a lot of the time. It's the, the, the good side effect of doing a lot of asana practice is you kind of look like these guys behind me. <laughs> um, so, and it, remi- it sort of reminded me of, of thinking about, you know, when we think about the Buddha and Patanjali and these great masters of old, sometimes we forget that they were yogis, that they were practitioners, that they had bodies and minds and struggles and fears and anxieties. And, you know, they had a thinking mind like we do and they had, you know, they suffered. You know, probably, you know, clearly for the Buddha, it was the great um, motivation was seeing the inherent suffering in life. And not that we know much about Patanjali's history, but I'm sure the same thing was motivating him, uh, that these, these people and, and others like them uh, were like us, you know, with a with 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 collection of fears and, and, and strengths and confusion, and through their own practice, you know, really uh, attain deep fruit. So, you know, it's clear when, when you read about the story of the Buddha, um, 
that you know his six years or more of, of practice uh, was very arduous as ascetic practice and struggle with fear and doubt, even up to the very night of his enlightenment. Um, so, and at the same time, through you know through his perseverance and dedication, he attained a very deep, profound realization that's rippling, unfolding still today uh, through the teachings and the practices. And you know, out of that realization, he came to this, this understanding of the Four Noble Truths, of the um, inherent suffering that's, uh, that's here in this realm in, 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 as, as we live as humans, and that there's causes to that suffering, and there's a way out. His liberation was a testament to the fact that there's a way out of this suffering that we find ourselves in, in the human predicament. And there's a path to that freedom. And at the same time, after his awakening, you know, he still had a body and he still got backache and had to deal with his monks and nuns who were often rowdy and he would get frustrated with them and go off into the woods for a while and get some solitude. You know, he got old and got sick and died. And yet, it's the, 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 the realization, the, the freedom, the understanding that there's a peace available beyond the conditions of this world that he expounded so clearly and what's available to each of us. He talked about the path, mindfulness being the path the gate, the doorway to the deathless. Deathless meaning the realm beyond the affliction of the conditions, the conditioned world that we live in. So after the Buddha's uh, awakening, so the, so the story goes, um, he sat for a while in the bliss of awakening and um, had doubts about whether he could teach what he discovered, because it was so profound and so deep and subtle, and his experience of the people around him was that they wouldn't be able to get it. They wouldn't really grok what he was on about. And the first person he met uh, didn't get what he was on about. He asked him, who are you? And he said, I'm awake, I'm a Buddha, I'm a fully enlightened one. And the guy kind of looked at him quizzically and shook his head and walked away. <laughs> so one assumes the Buddha thought, hmm, maybe I have to come up with a slightly different way of talking about my realization <laughs> for people to get it. So he trods off to uh, Sarnath, where his uh, ascetic uh, colleagues were, were practicing, about 100 miles away, set off on foot and, uh, and found them and uh, began his first teaching that, and gave the, the Dharma Chaka Pravartana the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, it's called the Sutta. And he talked about the primary thing he talked about, uh, aside from talking about his teaching being a teaching of the middle way, uh, was this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And I think that's significant that, that after the, the, the profundity of his realization that that was the teaching that he, he wanted to impart. And there's a lovely moment in, in the text where um, he, the Buddha's been teaching for, we don't, don't know quite how long, um, and all of a sudden one of, the, the, one of his disciples uh, gets it, has an awakening. Uh, and name, his name was Kondana, and uh, the Buddha exclaims, Kondana knows, Kondana knows. 
And I think it was a very exciting moment for the Buddha to realize that, that he could communicate his realization and that it could be understood and could also elicit um, a similar uh, taste of awakening. And so that lineage has carried on for thousands of years and we are part of that lineage. So when we present the teachings up here, any teachings, but particularly this teaching, um, we're not interested in presenting it as dogma or as doctrine or as a nice little list you can take away and expound to others uh, as, a, as a nice intellectual theory or you can bash people with. Um, it's really, we're giving it as a skillful means. The Buddha gave it as a skillful means, not as something to hold onto as an ultimate truth, but as a way to um, understand our experience, as a way to, um, to look at our experience, a framework to inquire into, into our experience to see what's true. I know when I first heard this teaching, it was in 1984, and, um, and I was in a, in a tradition that where we did a lot of study, and so I studied it a lot, and um, so I knew the list, and I knew the different interpretations, and, and, but I didn't really apply it to my experience. That hadn't occurred to me yet, and I wasn't really, don't remember hearing that. I remember we were just with Achen Sumedho, as, as, as we mentioned the other day, and um, he told this story of when he first became a monk, he took a year retreat um, very soon. And maybe he wasn't even a monk then, um, but a, 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 he was a renunciate. And he found a little uh, uh, kuti in, in the jungle up in northern Thailand, and he took one little book, um, which has this teaching on the Four Noble Truths, and that was his source for the year. No teacher, no guide, except this little book with the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, and really applied them to his practice. To, and he, he went through incredible suffering on the retreat, because he was sitting with, imagine going away without any training from, for a year on your own, <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> what would that be like for you? You'd probably encounter a lot of difficulty like he did. But he used this teaching of the Four Noble Truths as a way to understand. Um, and so over the years, I, I began to see that it was really a teaching that had to be lived and applied. And I know some of you have read Philip's book, uh, Dancing with Life, which is a wonderful um, exposition of the Four Noble Truths as it's come through the lineage of Achen Sumedho. It's a wonderful, uh, clear, practical guide um, and in the teaching, there's the, the way Ajahn Sumedho um, has, has brought it to, to life. Um, he's gone back to the source and talked about how it's a, there's, there's four truths, but 12 insights. So with each, with each of the truths, for instance, with suffering, there's a first noble truth. There's first the recognition, there is suffering. And the second uh, insight is the instruction, suffering is to be understood. And then the, the third insight is, is the realization, suffering has been understood. And so we apply those same insights to each four truths. And we'll talk about that as the nights go on. So it's really a practical um, tool. So tonight I'll be talking about the truth of suffering and how we come to 
to recognize it, to face it squarely, to look at it, uh, which we oft, so often don't want to do. Um, given a choice, we'd rather go sit in a hot tub than look at our suffering, right? Or go watch a movie, or have a beer with a friend, or whatever it is we like to do. But the, the, the Buddha is saying, no, we, we suffer, suffering is part of this realm. He didn't say life is suffering. He said there is suffering. And if we don't look at it, as Ajahn Chah says, if we, uh, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. By not looking at suffering, by not facing it, it comes up, comes to haunt us, as you know. So, So all of you here, uh, and I actually might do a little, um, little market research survey here. Um, you know, we're all drawn to the path for different reasons. You're all drawn to the yoga practice for different reasons, all drawn to Dharma practice for different reasons. Um, some of us are motivated by suffering, that we're clearly in pain and we're looking for a way out. Some people are more motivated by the, the, the jewels, the, the possibility the, 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 the potential that you've heard um, that's been taught by these different traditions. So I'm just curious here, how many people were motivated to start their practice, whatever, whenever your initial practice was, because of some kind of pain, suffering, unsatisfactoriness? Okay, about half, maybe a little more than half. Mm-hmm. How many, uh, because they thought it was going to be really juicy and you were going to get enlightened and free and all the goodies? And... Okay. And how many people just kind of stumbled and bumbled their way into it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it's a combination of all three. You know, we're sort of, we don't quite know we're suffering. We're kind of a little like existentially feeling, and then we kind of, you know, friend says, oh, check out this place. That's a really cute yoga instructor. <laughs> so what, what I've noticed as I've walked this path is that uh, through mindfulness and meditation, we become more sensitive, we become more open, we become more awake. Our hearts open, our bodies open, our field of receptivity and sensitivity opens. And so we become also more attuned to suffering, to the pain of the world, to the pain in our, in our family, our friends, our relationships, to the pain of the earth, the suffering that's happening to the earth. Um, so we, we start to, we, we start to you know, contra to this idea of, you know, Jung talked about, this is a lovely quote that I couldn't find, but it goes something like, um, uh, we, are, we, we like to imagine the spiritual path being a, a, an ascension into greater and greater light. And in fact, it's really uh, a descent into the darkness, and it's into the darkness that makes us whole by looking at that which is uncomfortable and difficult. So as we, as we grow in our spiritual uh, maturity, uh, we also become, we, we, we can't, open the heart without it being touched. 
by the suffering and the sadness of the world. And so it asks, you know, it, 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 there's, a, there's a necessity to, um, to, to learn how to work with the pain that we meet in ourselves, in each other, and particularly in, in our students. And I'll talk a little more about that. Um, you know, I think one of the greatest gifts we can give both to ourselves and also to our students is the work that we do around looking at our own pain and our own uh, challenges and difficulties and struggles. Because it's only through working through our own difficulty and pain that our heart opens, that we, that we begin to touch and develop a sense of compassion, a sense of caring, a sense of, uh, and also a sense of equanimity. And our practice prepares us also for working with the difficulty that we find in the world. I often think about that, that people often think, well, this meditation stuff, it's a little bit kind of you know, life avoidant and life denying and you know, it's not really the real world. You know. um, but what it does is actually prepares us for the real world, the world of, of pain and suffering. It's really, it's part of its job. This is from Suzuki Roshi. He says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you are tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. So I know when um, I've been uh, on retreats, particularly long retreats and deep uh, layers of pain or sadness or trauma or whatever has come through um, and uh, feeling the power of, of working with teachers who can either hold that space with compassion, with care. I've been with teachers who haven't been able to know what to do with me but have at least had the, the capacity to stay there in the difficulty, in the, in, the, in, the, in the midst of the pain, and provide a loving presence. I've had other teachers who've, um, because they've gone so deeply into their own struggle, that they were able to provide a sense of fearlessness and courage. And these are tremendous gifts that I received. And I know from doing the work on myself and really descending into some difficult places, which we all do, uh, in our lives and in our practice, that what I've noticed it's done for me in my teaching is, it's, is, I, is I have a sense that I can go anywhere with anybody, that there's nowhere that I'm afraid to go because there's nowhere that I've been afraid to go in myself. And so these, I'm saying these as, 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 as um, encouragements for the, this work that we do that sometimes can feel like, well, why do we have to go into this suffering stuff? Like, I really just want to be happy and joyful. But actually, it's a tremendous gift in many, many ways. This is another way of uh, looking at that. Um, this is from the poet Rashani, who uh, is talking about the gifts that come out of going into, into the broken. She says, There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. 
there is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is, a hollow too, there is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. I did want to backtrack for a second. Something I meant to say, um, I brought this book in, this lovely old Buddhist classic book called What the Buddha Taught. Um, and it's speaking to this thing of uh, sometimes Buddhism gets a bad rap because it has a reputation for always talking about suffering, or dukkha as it's called in Pali, suffering. Um, and you know the irony out of that, the, the people that I know that have been doing this practice for so long, they're actually very happy, joyful people. <laughs> this is from um, this is from the text. This is uh, uh, quoting the King of Kosala, who once told the Buddha that unlike many a disciple of other religion, other religious systems who looked haggard, coarse, pale, emaciated, and unprepossessing, his disciples were joyful and elated jubilant and exultant, enjoying the spiritual life with faculties pleased, free from anxiety, serene, peaceful, and living with a gazelle's mind, which apparently means light-hearted. So so that I'm speaking to that because there's there's a common fear in in the world and I think in the yoga community to some some degree of that looking, this orientation towards suffering is going to make us you know, really depressed and morose and kind of really heavy and serious. And actually what it does is it frees us, it lightens us up because we actually learn how to be spacious and easeful and find freedom in the middle of it. You know, I think you all know this from your own experience, you know, through your asana practice, through your yoga practice, wonderful realm to work with pain, to work with suffering, to work with the, the challenge of the physical body, of the limits, of the stresses, of the, the pain that comes from, from putting our bodies in these, in, these, in these asanas that are often very difficult and challenging. So I think you all have first-hand experience, at least on that level, of working with how, how to work with, with pain, with difficulty, with, with struggle in the, midst of, in the midst of yoga, and how to develop, more importantly, a wise response to that, a caring response, a sensitive response. And, I know, and, and what happens when you don't? Right? We get injured, right? How many of you got injured from not listening to your body, from, from trying too hard, from looking good, from wanting to please the teacher, from all the different ways that we act out on our mat, that's not really attuned, it's not cultivation of satipanya, of wisdom, mindfulness wisdom. So these teachings are asking us, how do we work with pain, with discomfort, with anguish, with fear, with loneliness, 
with what the Buddha calls the eight worldly winds of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. How do we deal with the vicissitudes that are constantly blowing through our life? You know, we all long for this place that things, you know, we finally get our stuff together and then that things start to kind of coast and think life is a breeze, right? But we never really quite get there because life is full of transient conditions. And so how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the losses and the fears, with the physical pains? You know, the, the question that Jack asked last night about what was in the room, what do you want to know? And a lot of what we heard was physical pain, challenges in relationships, in family, loss. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of what we come here with. And on retreat, as you may know by now, retreats are like a clearinghouse for all of our unresolved stuff. You know, we create this space of quiet and silence and tranquility and solitude. And what arises? All kinds of things that we haven't looked at, we, that we've repressed, that, that may be bubbling up. I was talking to people today, they're working with pain from 50 years ago. Just like the story Jack told last night, traumas. So it's an interesting word that these four truths are called noble truths. They're noble truths because they, they're ennobling. They bring out that which is noble within us, especially when we look at the truth of suffering. It's asking us to really uh, come from the deepest place of our being. So uh, I'm going to say a little about um, what the Buddha talked about, dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word for uh, suffering, but has many translations, unsatisfactoriness, stress, anguish, incapable of providing fulfillment, or difficult to bear. He also talked about his old age, sickness, despair, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and despair. Nice happy list. It's also, the, dukkha, the word dukkha has a reference to uh, this aspect of unsatisfactoriness, this analogy of a bumpy, uh, of a slightly imperfect wheel. Like imagine if you're on a bicycle and the wheel's slightly warped, or like you're in a car and the wheel's slightly warped. So it's almost perfect, but there's a little niggle each time, each, each rotation of the wheel. That, that quality of unsatisfactory is like that. So you may be sitting in meditation and you finally get quiet and peaceful and the breath is really smooth and your body's pain-free and you just think, okay, now I've arrived. Nibbana is just around the corner. <laughs> and then somebody starts coughing next to you <laughs> or breathing just, just, percept- just, just slightly perceptibly loud. And it's that not-quite-rightness. You ever had that experience? <laughs> A lot. Just not quite right. You know, you're on your mat and you're doing it, doing your asana, and you're really, really, you're getting into, you know, trikonasana or something in a way that you never have before. But there's still, you know, there's still something not quite right about the, you know, 
the alignment of something. Or I got a new I got a new yoga mat. I was very happy. It's a little thicker. You know, I guess I'm getting older or something. I don't know. <laughs> and it's off-gassing. <laughs> it stinks of I don't know what it's a plastic or something. These new yoga mats that are recycled. That, and, you know, um, you know, they're down doing you know chaturanga and <laughs> oh. <laughs> can we do upper dog, please? <laughs> Well, the story I like to tell of when I went, a friend of mine took me to Hawaii to this very upscale resort some, somewhere I'm not, not very used to staying. And um, I thought it was a great room overlooking the ocean. It was all very delightful. And uh, my friend walked in and immediately noticed there was dust on the blinds of the room. I'm like, oh, it's the not quite rightness. <laughs> so I translate dukkha as it's hard to be human. It's hard to be human with being so sensitive. We're sensitive, feeling, sensate beings. We have these six senses, and the heart, and the skin, and an awareness that's very open. And uh, we're in a world that's fast, that's busy, that's complex, that's jarring, that's grating, that's demanding. Um, and so it takes a lot of uh, presence to, to, to move to it. Just last week, those of you who live locally, we had a heat wave. Heat wave for the Bay Area was, you know, 90 degrees or something. We actually got up to 105. Um, and it was just very, I found it very unpleasant. I couldn't think, I couldn't work. Um, and so I decided to go camping with friends and we went up the hill. And by the time we got up the hill, the fog came in, so it was freezing. <laughs> you know, that's dukkha right there. It's the conditioned world beyond our control. You know, we try so desperately to, to manage the conditions, right, to, to get things right. And, you know, we, we do pretty good at that. And in America is probably the culture that's most, been most successful at trying to manage conditions. You know, we can move to Phoenix and survive in the desert, you know, 120 degree weather, you know, so we can sort of make it work, but it's never quite right. So it's important with the, with the teaching of dukkha to understand the difference between what's more essential dukkha, essential suffering, and the more personal reactive suffering that we bring to it. And it's the personal reactive suffering that the Buddha is speaking to. There is suffering in the world, and there will always be suffering in the world, whether it's the suffering that comes from climate change, from earthquakes and cyclones and, and all of that. Um, the cycles of birth and death, um, those, 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 that level of essential suffering um, will continue. What we have some jurisdiction over is our reaction or our relationship to that suffering. That's where these teachings are honed in, is our relationship to the inevitable suffering of being in this world. How do we relate to change, to loss, to death, to tragedy, to all the different things that blow through our hearts and mind. And the, the teaching of the First Noble Truth is, um, is, is inviting us to see the universal nature of our pain and our suffering. We often personalize it. 
We often personalize our suffering. I'm the only one, or I'm doing something wrong. If only I'd got my shit together, then, excuse me, then um, I wouldn't be suffering so much, and everybody else seems to have it together. And you know, When we understand suffering, we realize it's what unites us. It's one of the things that most binds us. So it's very liberating to just acknowledge the truth of that. There is suffering in this life. There is pain. I sat a retreat some years ago at Guy House in England. The sister sent it to this. And it was a 30-day retreat. And, um, you know, like, like we all do, I signed up for the retreat thinking it was going to be a great retreat. And uh, it was going to be, you know, lots of insights and joy and peace and all of that. And it wasn't. It was really a hard retreat. It was actually pretty miserable. And I hated it. And I didn't want to be there. I wanted to go home. And it was a, the first 10 days was just really, really difficult. And I was struggling and resisting and resenting it and thinking I was doing it wrong and all of that, like we do. And then at some point after the you know, ninth or 10th day, the insight suddenly dawned, oh, this is dukkha. This is suffering. This is what the Buddha talked about. There is suffering in life. Duh. <laughs> okay, this is suffering. And then once I recognized it, as the, Buddha said, as the Buddha said, recognize suffering, understand suffering, it, it actually took the suffering out of it. It just became, I could meet the unpleasant conditions. You know, my mind was restless and my body was agitated and you know, my concentration wasn't there. And that's just how it was. But the suffering was taken out of it. So it comes back to this key point that we talk a lot about, that... Um, that how much we suffer or not depends on how we, how we relate to the experience. Whether we can open to something with curiosity or with interest or with kindness or with acceptance, or whether we push it, we kick back, we fear, resist, we, we push away, we strike against it. So one of my favorite books is by a French uh, man, Jacques Lusserian, who um, wrote a book called And There Was Light, he was, uh, lived during the, the Nazi occupation in France in the 30s and 40s. And, um, and he went blind at the age of eight. And it's a beautiful um, story of how he uh, really just completely softened into that experience of going blind and how for him, losing his sight was not a loss, but actually just an opening into another rich way of being in the world through his senses, his, through his sense of touch, and through his hearing, and became this incredibly receptive, intuitive, uh, wise man who helped the French resistance uh, against, the, against, against the, German, the Germans' occupation. And Viktor Frankl, who was also involved in that era, speaking of the same thing, he said, it's not the load that weighs us down, but how we carry it. It's not the load that wears us down, it's how we carry it. So the Buddha gave this very insightful uh, teaching um, that I know of, know of as the sutta on the two darts, the two arrows. Um, and I found this very helpful in my practice. And he said that, Normally our experience, what happens is, is something happens, like we, we feel, let's say, um, we feel backache, 
right? Just an ordinary level of, of, of suffering. And that's the first dart. Or we feel sadness, or we feel some mm, dullness in our meditation. And instead of leaving it that, and knowing it as that, recognizing as that, we actually add a second dart, a second arrow. And the second arrow would be often in the form of, oh God, I'm, my back's hurting again. You know, if I'd just done more yoga this morning, it would be, I, I know I'd be able to sit better. You know, I can't believe you're still sad. Like, get over it already. That happened months ago. So we add this layer of suffering where we judge ourselves, we beat ourselves up, we, you know, we, just, we just add fuel on the fire. And we do this all the time. Rather than just meeting the experience of sadness or difficulty or physical pain, we uh, extrapolate or we add onto it with the mind. So notice as, through the days how you do that, how you add onto the experience and really turn something that's, that's painful into suffering. And it's really important to notice the difference between pain and suffering. We can have, and that's one of the gifts of this practice, is we can have a lot of, say, physical pain, as I'm sure you've noticed in your practice. But whether we suffer with it is a different matter. Whether we complain and resist and have self-pity and collapse and berate ourselves, and, or whether we just go, oh, you know, my hamstrings are like this. They're tight. <laughs> I say that because I have very ham- tight hamstrings. And so it's been an on- ongoing uh, dart for me in my yoga practice. And I watch my mind around it. I watch how, how I can, you know, berate my body. Oh, this body, you know, it's just full of pain. It's just not good enough. You know, or it could be, oh, tightness. Tightness is like this. Aversion is like this. Resistance is like this. At least the Sufi poet says, we carry within us ingredients to make us miserable. Do not mix them. <laughs> Actually, he, I think, it, I think the, the, the actual quote is, we carry all the ingredients to turn our life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. <laughs> and he also says, we also carry the ingredients to turn our life into great joy. Mix them and mix them. So the instruction with the First Noble Truth with suffering, to understand suffering, we have to get close to it. We have to stand under it. We have to feel it. We have to sense it. We have to know it intimately. As Philip says, we have, we have to uh, know the ouch of it, you know, that suffering has an ouch. It's painful. And we, you know, we naturally recoil. You know, it's a natural, instinctual, biological response to recoil. But actually, uh, the, the wisdom comes from moving towards it. My, my, uh, my nephew, who, when he was about six, was very proud of this nursery rhyme that he used to sing. Uh, he lives in the north of England, did live in the north of England, which, where I grew up, and uh, it's very rainy, lots of puddles, and you know, kids love puddles. So he'd put on his wellies, which they're called, what are wellies called here? They're called um, rubbers, rubbers, galoshes, rubber boots, things and go proudly walking up through the, through the puddles. And, you, and the, the nursery rhyme was, you can't go, and you'd say it in a Geordie accent, because that's, yeah, that's the accent you say, you can't go under it, you can't go over it, you can't go around it, you've got to go through it. And then you plod off through the puddles, splash, splash, splash. 
<laughs> the big smile on his face. You can't go under it, you can't go over it, you can't go around it, you've got to go through it. So that's the metaphor for our practice. You know, we'll do anything to avoid it, right? We'll go under it, we'll go around it, we'll go over the top of it, we'll, you know, we'll draw it, we'll do anything, but to be with it and to go through it. And of course, healing, suffering, transformation, understanding comes when we, when we meet something and, and, and go through it, through the experience. This is from one of the Spirit Rock teachers, Robert Hall, who now is down in Mexico. The cure for the pain is in the pain. Longing is actually the feeling of life reaching out for conscious connection with all that is. It takes great courage to willingly feel the symptoms of grief, longing, despair, or fear, and not flee from them. All these feelings must be felt in the body as life experience, not disease. The body may feel them as pain, but perhaps instead they are the birth pangs of a larger life that wants to be born through you. So the invitation in the sitting, in the walking, and particularly in your asana practice, is to, is to bring that fine attention to the places that you normally recoil from, normally avoid, normally reject, normally uh, fear. Achan Sumedho puts it this way. To allow the truth of cessation to work, the truth of cessation is a third noble truth, we must be willing to suffer. This is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering because it's in embracing suffering that suffering ceases. When we find that we are suffering, then we go to the actual suffering that is present. We open completely to it, welcome it, concentrate on it, allowing it to be what it is, and that means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom, despair and doubt and fear in order to understand that they cease rather than running away from them. So um, <clears throat> the Buddha talked about all kinds of different ways that we suffer and you're all experts in it, so I won't spend too long on this, but um, he talked about the three kinds of dukkha, dukkha dukkha, which is um, the dukkha really of having a body. And uh, just the, um, the, uh, the, the pain and the unsatisfactoriness that can come from having a body, physical pain, the, 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 um, I often think of this as the, as the chore part of having a body. You've got to feed it, you've got to wash it, you've got to clean the bones in the mouth, you know, and you've got to keep it warm and keep it clothed and dressed and undressed and rested. And, you know, there's just a sort of like, there's a certain, a certain the daily drudge of maintaining a physical form. It's kind of dukkha dukkha. Uh, Good Housekeeping magazine reported 84 unpleasant sensations in the body. Uh, maybe while you're doing the housework. I don't know why they <laughs> reported that. But, um, so there's, you know, there's, the, there's, the, there's the pain of the body, and, and, and of course the body is, is, is a wonderful teacher in that respect, as, I, as we've mentioned. Um, and also gives us the, the, the chance to, to, to meet our body with some kindness, with some care, with some compassion, rather than avoidance. 
And then there's the dukkha of change, of impermanence. The suffering that comes from the fact that everything is impermanent. No matter how blissful your meditation, how delightful the walking meditation was one day, or the asana practice, or the food, or... You know, what, think of every delicious experience you've ever had in your life. Think of the best ones. Right? Where are they? They've gone. So delightful and beautiful and wonderful that this world can be, it's incapable of providing the lasting satisfaction that we want, because everything keeps changing, including our relationships, our marriages, our families, our health, aging. Anybody aging here? And I ask the question, how do we relate to that? How do we relate to the fact that the body's getting older? It's a one-way ticket. How do we relate to loss, to change, to unreliability? So the third dukkha is um, Sankara dukkha, the fact that everything is made up of conditions. We live in a conditioned world that are constantly changing, coming together, passing away. So there's not the sense of reliability and ground that we, we're, we're always seeking. We love consistency and reliability and steadiness. And you know, we can create that to some degree. You know, an earthquake happens or our partner walks out or you know, who knows what conditions or somebody dies or we get sick or you know, we get fired. Um, but also talked about it um, uh, before I go into that, um, the, this, you also talked about suffering as um, not getting what we want, not getting what we want, losing what we have, being separated from that which we love. Anybody here not got what they wanted? The body you wanted, the partner you wanted, the money you wanted, the job you wanted, the meditation you wanted, the fame you wanted, you know, the list is endless. Losing what you have. How many things have you lost in your life that's painful? Health, youth, brain cells, memory. <laughs> Suppleness. You know. Can you do the asana practice you could when you were 21? Or 30? Or 40? Or 50? and being separated from that which we love. You know, I just want to mention briefly um, one of the places that we, we experience uh, the, where we come into, into contact with dukkha so much on retreat and in our lives is in the realm of the heart and emotional pain. The pain of sadness and loss and grief Jealousy, envy, fear, regrets, disappointments. And it's often very difficult to bear the heaviness of the heart, the sadnesses and the losses. There's a poem from Rilke where he talks about, where he says, when he's talking about his inability to be with his emotional pain, he says, how we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance, 
to see if they have an end, where they are really seasons of us, our winter enduring foliage. So how often do we feel something and we just, all we can do is imagine it ending or hoping it ending, wishing it was ending. And of course it's through opening to our hearts that we really uh, begin to nurture this quality of compassion, quality of kindness, of care. And it's through doing that that actually, um, I mean, I've certainly found in my experience that that learning to work with emotional pain um, has provided some of the the most tangible sense of healing and also um, confidence in the practice that that I can hang out with whatever comes my way. I'm not going to necessarily like it or I'm not going to suffer with it, but there's a sense of steadiness that can come because of there's a there's a because the awareness is, is imbued with a softness, with a tenderness, with a with a quality of non-resistance. So you all know you're probably all familiar with this poem, but I'll read a little bit of it because it's such it speaks to this so well. The, the Naomi Shihab Nye poem where she talks about um, developing kindness and working with pain. She says, before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You you must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. So our practice can, can provide that when we meet, when we turn towards the pain in the heart with openness, with tenderness. So when the Buddha talked about being separated from that which we love, I think the thing that's most painful, the most fundamental of our sufferings is the separation or the seeming disseparation, disconnection from our true nature. Separation from understanding who it is that we are, what it is that we are. When we, when we, get, when we get embroiled and, and fooled by the trick of the mind and the world, in believing that we are all of the conditions of the mind, all of the thoughts, all of the feelings, all of the entanglements, and not seeing the awareness, this luminous, compassionate presence that's holding it all. Patanjali said, pure awareness is to abide in its nature, otherwise awareness takes itself to be the patterns of conditions. And it's when we take ourselves to be the patterns of conditions that we, we seemingly lose or get disconnected, separate from the truth of our nature, from pure awareness. And it's really awareness, mindfulness, that's the refuge with, with working with suffering. Awareness, mindfulness is that which holds, which understands, which knows the appearance and the disappearance of suffering. And when we, and we'll talk a little about this as the retreat goes on, when we see things that 
cause suffering, when we no longer resist and fight and we just allow it to be, it arises, it stays a while, it passes away, and what's left is awareness, knowing that's free, that's untouched by conditions. So to summarize, to, to, to encourage you to, to understand how freedom, happiness comes not from the conditions, not from getting things to go our way and to be a certain way, but really in how we bring presence to bear with whatever's happening, how we meet our experience. That is the doorway, that is the precipice between suffering and freedom, how we meet what's happening in our experience. And so we take refuge in this knowing, in this presence of mind. So let's sit for a minute. resting in the simplicity of awareness. And knowing how you're meeting the present conditions. Whether the conditions are pleasant, unpleasant, suffering or peaceful. knowing your relationship may all beings know the peace of their nature Five minutes for walking and then we'll have a sit. Nine o'clock. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.